One of those things got got in. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique, where we delve into the mysteries of ancient civilizations and the enigmatic Nephilim. Don't forget to subscribe. We have shows going out at least twice a week, and that subscription helps us fight the algorithms. All of the socials are in the show notes, and you can help us keep the mics hot by showing appreciation at Buy Me a Coffee, also in the show notes. Don't forget to check out the incredible products available at CryptiquePodcastStore.com. In tonight's episode, we are honored to have L.A. Marzuli, a distinguished author, lecturer, and filmmaker, join us. With 12 books under his belt, including the Nephilim Trilogy, which soared to the CBA bestsellers list, Marzulli has become a leading voice in uncovering the secrets of our past. Awarded an honorary doctorate for his groundbreaking series, Marzulli takes us on a journey through the shadows of history, exposing a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. Partnering with the late Richard Shaw, Marzulli's Watchers series, comprising 11 installments, has earned accolades, with Watchers 7 UFO Physical Evidence clinching top honors at the UFO Congress in 2014. Get ready for a captivating journey into the realms of the unknown with our esteemed guest, L.A. Marzulli. Welcome to Cryptique. I'm Jay. You're talking with Ryan also. How are you doing? Ryan and Jay, great to meet you guys. Absolutely. Good to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. Like I said, we know you're super busy. Uh, can can you just tell everyone where they can find you? And, and if you have a spot where you'd like them to follow along tonight on this podcast, maybe on your website or something, let them know that. Well, the website is lamarzuli.net. Um, there are links from there to all of our different social media platforms and uh, um our streaming site, there right now there are 27 films in that, uh, in that body of work. Mm-hmm. And you can go to streaming.lamarzulli.net. And, uh, you know, for pennies on a dollar, you can instant have, have instant gratification and, uh, you know, download the stuff. And, uh, or if you want the hard copies. But er- everything is shifting over to streaming. There's no doubt about that. But uh, we, we have we still carry the streaming stuff and we still carry the DVDs um, on our website, lamarzuli.net. So lots of material there, 13 books, 27 films. Well, get the DVDs before you get canceled, right? I'm <laughs> sure they're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we wanted to talk about uh, Nephilim a little bit tonight and some giants. What spark caused you to realize that? uncovering our hidden history was going to be your calling in life. Is that, where did you, why are you asking me that? Um, Do you know the answer to that? And you're just kind of prodding me along with a softball question, which I can't wait to answer. Or did you, is this just something that you just said, gee, I wonder why he got into that. I just, I'm just curious to know. Well, it's a little bit of both because I know your background, and I know that you made a big change uh, when you were in your 30s, I believe, but I don't know that our listeners are going to know. So that's why I want to cover that. But yes, sure, we'll start off with a lob and a softball question. So, Those are good. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I became, uh, I was, I was uh, raised Catholic at 13, left for church. Then I followed New Age practices and was completely immersed in the occult from, mm-hmm. I don't know, 15 to 30. So 15 mm-hmm. years, I was with a guru. My third eye was open. Mm-hmm. I had spirit guides. I did silver mind control. Um, I was all over the map that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, 30 years old, I was reading a book called Kingdom of the Cults by, um, yeah, you know, The Cult Explosion by David Hunt. Mm-hmm. Kingdom of the Cults is another great book by the, by Walter Martin. Both of them kind of overlap. But at any rate, um, at the at the end of the book is a little prayer, and I, I gave my life to Jesus. One of those Jesus, you know, come to Jesus moments. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing happened. A month later, everything happened, and my life's never been the same since. That's 43 years ago. Um, I became an advent, an advent, like, I can't think straight. The cold is just knocking my, <laughs> my brain into oblivion here. But I became an avid uh, follower and, and researcher of prophecy, all things uh, prophetic, found in the Bible, or what I prefer to call the guidebook to the supernatural. But I was a professional musician, always had been. Um, I was out in Los Angeles trying to become, uh, make it in the music business. We came close, the band I was with, several times, in and out of very prestigious studios. I won't bore you with the names of them, but at the time <laughs> they were cutting edge, you know, top of the top shelf stuff. Sure. And, um, you know, the Lord just kept me from that lifestyle, looking back at it, and that's, you know, an, a long time ago, coming up on 50 years. Wow. And, um, you know, I was a worship leader for 25 years. And then the Lord began to shift my my ministry, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. So I had already written a couple of books. I was headed to Newark, Ohio. So all three books of, of the Nephilim trilogy were already researched. They were in print. They were out. Okay, mm-hmm. a- along with politics, prophecy, and the supernatural, that book was also out to the public. And my good friend Russ Dizdar, who passed away a couple of years ago now, calls me up and he goes, "L.A., do you know where you're going?" I go, "Well, I'm I'm going to Newark, Ohio." He starts laughing. Yeah, and you had to know, you had to know Russ. When Russ started chuckling like that, something was up. He knew something that you didn't know. Sure. And so I go, I'm going to Newark, Ohio. He goes, are you by your computer? I go, yeah. He goes, Google Nephilim Chronicles in the Ohio Valley, uh, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, the Nephilim Chronicles by Fritz Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And I go, what? And he tells me the title again, you know, the Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. And there's Fritz Zimmerman's book. I order the book, but I also do both. I'm on a plane ride, five-hour plane ride to Ohio. I can probably read the whole book in one sitting, which is what I did do. Nice. And I got the PDF and on the plane, I'm reading this thing going and looking at the pictures and just, just blown away by Fritz Zimmerman's work. And I shot him an email and said, we got to get together, blah, blah, blah. So um, I'm at the conference in Ohio and I'm, this is Saturday and my driver, the guy who's taking me from the hotel to the conference center, um, mm-hmm. I go, well, where's this great circle mound? Are we, are we anywhere near it? He goes, yeah, it's up here on the right. We've, we've been going by it since you've been here. I go, no, you're kidding me. He goes, no, right up here on the right. Sure enough, 
we drive by it, Nork Earthworks, you know, there it is. And I'm looking at in the distance at the site, and I go, I, my driver keeps going. I go, look, tomorrow's Sunday. We have a half a day. I got to pack up everything, and I should be done around 2.33. Come get me and then drop me back here, and I want to spend a couple hours here. He goes, okay, great. So he does. And the next day happens, and I pack up my stuff, and we pull into the parking lot now, and it's around 3, 3.15 in the afternoon, something like that. And uh, there's nobody in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Not another car. Nobody. And I walk up this asphalt path, which is about four feet wide. Path is still there. And I'm looking to my left. And this huge mound of dirt, which I don't really, I know it's a circle from Fritz's book. But, you know, because I'm on the ground next to this thing, I have no idea right, right. of what I'm really looking at. And I get to the top and I look to my right and there's the museum, which is closed. And I, I turn to my left and I walk into the circle mound to the gate, the gateway of the circle. Mm-hmm. And as I as I get to the entrance, I pause and my my body is is sort of frozen and I'm hyperventilating and my eyes are darting from left to right. I'm afraid to move a muscle. And this lasts 30 seconds, a minute. I can't tell you how long I was there, but a while. And I'm going Mm -hmm. (sighs) like that. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like frozen in time. And um, I realized, to your your question, that I'm looking at the rest of my life, that I I will be doing this, researching this, this is the rest of my life. And and that's, you know, over a decade ago. And that's exactly what my life has been ever since. And an amazing life it is. You've, like I said, you've covered just about everything out there. We want to kind of focus on the Nephilim and the giants. Can you tell the listeners kind of a brief overview of what the Nephilim are? I mean, Ryan and I are familiar and, you know, we both, I guess, identify as Christian as well, um, Catholic, but not really into the Catholic Church that much. Um, so we know what the Nephilim are, but could you tell our listeners uh, just some background of uh, you know where they came from, uh, you know how they're described in the ancient texts and whatnot? Well, the Nephilim are, are a very controversial subject, and it depends on who you talk to. You can talk to some very well-meaning people who assure you that. Um, my paradigm is completely wrong and that there's nothing to see here. Keep moving. But that's, that's not what we believe or what I believe for a second. The Nephilim, it's very clear. When you go to Genesis 3.15, and I got to thank Gary Sturman for this because Gary illuminated that text to all of us um, decade, oh, about a decade ago, maybe longer. I don't know. It's been a while. And we were talking about Genesis 3.15. And that says the seed of a serpent will be at war, at enmity with the seed of the woman. The one coming from the woman, the seed of the woman, the proto-evangelium, uh, will crush the dragon's head. He will bruise the uh, he will bruise his heel. That sets up the entire biblical prophetic narrative, the guidebook of a supernatural. Everything that we need to know is found in Genesis 3.15. It's going to be a seed war. It's going to be between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the dragon, i.e. Satan. Mm -hmm. Three chapters later in Genesis 6, that's exactly what happens. It explodes, which results in the the flood of Noah. 
The Nephilim are the seed of the dragon. And the seed of the dragon copulates or combines with human women. So mm-hmm. you have fallen angels that are copulating, having sex with human women, creating a hybrid entity known as the Nephilim. They were the mighty men of old. They were giants. They were sexually deviant with uh, rapacious appetites. And this is the reason for the flood. This is the reason why only eight people were saved. Uh, mm-hmm. According to the book of Enoch, and again, the same people who will say there's nothing to see here will, will warn you about reading the book of Enoch. Well, <laughs> the book of Enoch is quoted in the book of Jude. So it's not part of our canon, but the fact that Jude knew about it and quotes it from Enoch is very telling. And if you were going to keep one book out of the people's hands, that's the book you keep out. And in fact, in, in here in the West, no one knew about the book of Enoch until um, uh, R.H. Charles got a copy from the Ethiopian Bible and translated it. That's how long this thing was hidden from the public view. And so the R.H. Charles version is, is, I think, one of the best out there. And in the R.H. Charles version, he talks, it's very succinct. It's, it's, there's no qualms about it. The sure. fallen angels are having sex with the human women, creating the Nephilim. And this goes back to the seed war in Genesis 3.15. This is why Genesis 3.15 is the gateway, the key to the rest of the Bible. If we don't understand Genesis 3.15, then we, we have no key to interpret the rest of Scripture. Because we know that the, from the seed of the woman will come the Messiah, the Proto-Evangelium. We know that. That's the first prophecy in our Bible. That scripture, Genesis 3.15, is so pregnant with meaning, so so full of, of prophetic insight that it's passed over, it's glossed over. I Look, I've been a Christian for 43 years. I have never been in a church service where they've talked about that, ever. Yeah. Ever. The only person who ever talked about it was Gary Stearman. And in his lecture, it's all about the seed, which blew everybody away. I knew about Genesis 6, but I wasn't a student of Genesis 3.15. And Gary uh, illuminated that scripture, and the rest is history. So what we see is this commingling of the seed, exactly Mm -hmm. like Genesis 3.15 tells us, creating this hybrid entity known as the Nephilim, who are on the earth before the flood and also after the flood. I wrote an entire book on how the Nephilim returned after the flood. Because once again, oh, there's nothing to see here. They all got wiped out in the flood. Well, who the heck? When Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land and begin to conquer it, who who do you think is there? Nephilim tribes are there. Why are they there? Seed war, Genesis 3.15. Once again, if we don't get Genesis 3.15 right, when we get to the gates of, of Canaan, the promised land, we don't know what we're looking at. Who are these Zanzumins and these Emims and the Rephaim and the Anakim? Who are they? And the Horites? Who are these entities? You mm-hmm. are looking at the manifestation of the seed war on both sides. The dragon has his forces in the land, and the Most High God has his one force from the seed of Abraham. All the nations of earth will be blessed. So it's 400 years before. They arrive at the promised land, 
400 years. It's actually more like 440 years. Mm -hmm. And the, the children of Israel now have 12 tribes. But the enemy is there with his forces. And what we're looking at is the culmination of Genesis 3.15. It's a demonstrative, but it's not taught. People don't get it. We are looking at the seed of the woman, full-blown, 12 tribes of Israel, seed of the dragon, full-blown, the Zanzumim, the Emims, the Rephaim, the Nephilim, the, Zam, the Zanzumim, I've already said that, the Anakim, the Horites, they're all there. Different genetic um, traits, possibly. Not all of them were giants. Certainly the Horites, we don't think were. Elongated mm-hmm. skulls, very possible. Very okay. possible. All sorts of crazy stuff. Giants, absolutely, all day long. All day long. The Anakim, the Longnecks, they're all there. And you mm-hmm. get these two forces clashing in the Promised Land. And this is not taught in the churches. People don't understand it. And so the the non-Christian secular guy will look at this and go, oh, it's genocide. The God of the Bible is this rapacious, you know, moron who hates everybody. And that's not what's going on here. You are watching, you are watching literally the manifestation of the seed war, which is totally in an every way profound. And it hails back to Genesis 3.15. That's who the Nephilim are. They are in the land, the mandate, and they're, they're soulless. The Nephilim, mm-hmm. remember, the progeny of fallen angels. They're not supposed to be there. They do not have souls like we do. They are in a fixed state. And this is why the mandate goes out to eradicate them. We'll be back with L.A. Marzuli after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Now, you, you talk about giants for sure. And now when you say elongated skulls, you're not talking about human manipulation. You're talking uh, about basically they look like what we would consider a gray alien skull. No, not a, not a gray no. alien. No, not, not that. <clears throat> they are really different. Okay. The elongated skulls that I found in Peru. That Brian Forrester, yeah, Paracas. Okay, Brian, you know Brian Forrester was the one that put that on the map. But mm. our team and Brian was part of that team did the uh, extensive DNA testing on the uh, on the Paracas skulls, and uh, that's in our film, which is number six, the uh, conclusive D, the, the basically the DNA report. Um, Mondo Gonzalez, archaeologist, is there. We've got. Rick Woodward, uh, who's an anthropologist. We've got medical doctors, medical professionals, all sorts of people weigh in on this, surgeons and optometrists. So it's a multidiscipline team. Uh, it's the only film out there that's multidiscipline that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian may have done something, but I don't know. Um, I know Gaia TV came down and did something. But again, it's not, in my opinion, our, that film, because it's multidiscipline, with chiropractors and optometrists and surgeons and medical doctors and uh, archaeologists and anthropologists 
Nobody's done this deep dive. And then you got all the DNA reporting. Uh, it shows that a preponderance of these entities, uh, of these skulls, originated in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, of course, once again, the powers that be don't want to hear that because it rewrites history. And right. it does rewrite history. So instead, they give us the straw man argument. Oh, it's all contaminated. There's nothing to see. You know, this is this is pseudoscience. Well, let me understand something. Our protocols were above board. We've had people right. tell us that the protocols to collect the DNA were as above board and as stringent as anything out there. We, we were applauded for our protocols because we were trained from the paleo DNA laboratory up in Canada. We had, I think we had upwards of 40 lab suits that uh, were, we shipped down to Paracas. So for every new skull that we examined, Mondo, who's our lead archaeologist, Mondo Gonzalez and I would leave the room, take out the old, take off the old lab suit, blow each other off with uh, compressed air, and then put on new lab suits, which had hats, face masks, double double sleeves, gloves, boots, the whole nine yards, and then blow each other off with compressed air and then go into the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who does that? And then the DNA samples we always would take, for the most part, from the foramen magnum, which is the under part of the skull, very thick bone area. Mm-hmm. And we would take our Dremel tool and and take um, a little bit of the skull material off and then get fresh material, that would fall into a fresh sheet of paper. We'd crease the paper, boom, right into a tube, flagged Mm -hmm. and tagged by Chase Klotsky. So our protocols were very stringent, very much as good as you're going to get anywhere in the field. So for the powers that be to tell us that this is pseudoscience, first of all, it's an insult. Second of all, yeah. it's a straw man argument. Look at the data and tell us where we're going wrong. And if it's all, Mondo came up with this, if it's all um, contaminated, why didn't we get nuclear DNA? We didn't get nuclear DNA. If it was contaminated, you would get nuclear DNA. Right, yeah. One sample was contaminated with my DNA. We threw that out. Sure. We took Mondo's DNA and my DNA. And so they were able to, the moment they saw anything that remotely looked like that, Sample was tossed. There was only one sample out of the 56 that we took. Out of the 56, 28 of them sequenced. Out of the 28, we had a preponderance of them, which show Eastern European, Baltic Sea area, uh, the Levant, uh, the Middle East in general. Rewrites history, guys. It does. And it's funny that they call it pseudoscience, but we send people to the electric chair with a lot less evidence than that, right? Exactly. It's it's sad. So are you able to find labs that are just like, sure, we'll test it. No problem. Whatever. Are you running into the kind of scientific wall now where people are like, nope, we're not even going to touch it? Funny you should mention that. My, My business partner, Gil Zimmerman and I, um, we're talking about that very thing. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, there's one lab who will take our stuff. And, and I'm not going to mention their name, but there's one lab. Uh, there's other labs that are very prestigious that won't take our stuff at all. The moment they hear L.A. Marzulli or Paracas DNA, they just call it pseudoscience. 
and and out it goes. And it's really an insult because what this is is this is um, discrimination. Yeah. And if I had money to waste on a lawyer, I would sue them <laughs> for blatant discrimination. You just don't like my results. You don't like the paradigm that I'm embracing. But yeah. you know, our our hypothesis with the Paracas skulls was this. It's in writing that we believe because of of our biblical background, but just because of our research, we believe that these people did not originate, um, come over from the Bering land bridge at the, at the end of the last ice age. We sure. believe that they were uh, people that came and fled from Joshua and Caleb's conquest of the of the Levant, of the Holy Land, about 3,500 years ago. We know that the Paracas people show up in Paracas, Peru, around 3,000 years ago. It fits the timeline. fits the timeline. There was a diaspora. So we also prove that, and this is the work of Rick Woodward, that you know people, archaeologists, mainstream archaeologists, insist that all this is the result of cranial deformation. Well, we beg to differ. And, and this Rick Woodward showed that the foramen magnum on, on the, the skulls that we believe are genuine, mm-hmm. that, that hail from the Levant, the foramen magnum, which is the hole where the spinal column attaches to the base of the skull, is pushed all the way to the posterior uh, of the skull. Uh, and so it, it's, if it's any further back, it's outside the skull. And you can't manipulate the foramen magnum in utero mm-hmm. while the child is, is in the mother's womb. You can't do that. And we know that this thing is pushed all the way back uh, to the occipital plate, to the rear skull. And that's a huge smoking gun, yeah. huge smoking gun. And it necessitates a much longer neck. So now what are we looking at? Are these, interestingly enough, that the Anakim, one of the Nephilim tribes in the Levant that Joshua and Caleb Ward against are called the long necks. So mm-hmm. it's it's extremely interesting and telling, and we are uh, discriminated against. We are censored. We are called pseudoscientists. But how is this pseudoscience? Here's here's a DNA sample. You're telling me where it's from. Oh wait, right. That actually supports a hypothesis. Isn't that what science is? that I'm supposed to have a hypothesis and then go out and try to prove it. And if the data comes back that proves my hypothesis, maybe I can start with a theory. Yeah. And if the data doesn't, doesn't prove it, then I need to rework the hypothesis and kind of work from there. Well, guess what? The data overwhelmingly showed that our hypothesis was the correct one. But mainstream archaeology and the powers that be and the scientific community and academia, which basically runs the planet, they don't like that. They don't like that because it goes against their prevailing paradigm, which is the Darwinian paradigm. Yeah, it's it's very sad that you guys can't even find people to test it because if if I didn't believe what you were saying, I'd say, let's go get it tested. It's pretty simple. It's not... Real simple. There's no way to refute DNA evidence for the most part. And if I didn't believe you, I'd say, well, let's just do this and we'll shut the book for good on it. But that's not what happened. Can you tell us uh, about the optometrist that you talked to about the uh, kind of where the eyes are set in some of the Paracas skulls? 
uh, the orbits of the mm-hmm. eyes and the Paraka skulls are 25 to 30% larger than a normal human being. So how do you bind the child's head and make that happen? How right. do you create the pupillary distance between the pupils that, where the iris is, where the pupils are in, in the eyeball? They, they should be about 60, 65. They're, they show up around 45 millimeters. So it's like, you know, what are we looking at here? How, how do you account for these genetic anomalies? And, yeah. uh, you know, Dr. Duff comes in on the film and he examines the skulls. I think we had two or three of them there. Basically, the, on camera, so it's the same thing. You know, you, you can't, this is genetic. And, and everybody in the film, the DNA film, the final evidence, whatever, you know, the, the number six in the Amitrail of the Nephilim series, everyone says the same thing in the beginning of the film. What we are looking at is genetic, 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 genetic. That term genetic is used over and over and over again. So there you have it. So there's giants in pretty much every culture. I know the Native Americans talked about the redhead giants with the two rows of teeth and the six fingers. Are all the giants that are mentioned throughout, um, you know, different civilizations, are those all Nephilim, do you believe? Or, or are they just, you know, obviously we have some very tall humans like Shaq and stuff like that. But are the giants in all these old uh, tales Nephilim? Well, there's no way to know that. I mean, there just isn't. Um, we know from a Native American oral tradition that the bad guys, the Nephilim giants, that were here um, uh, in the Americas, red hair, six fingers, sexually deviant. They were cannibalistic. <clears throat> Those are the bad guys. Uh, Sarah Winnemucca, the Paiute tribe uh, down in the, <clears throat> in the Southwest area, it talks about the same thing at the red haired six finger giants, the Sitika, that's what she calls them. Chief Joseph in our film talks about, the giants that were here and what they used to do. The Nephilim Lance, which is in our Out of Place Artifact film, which is the last one we just just released at number eight in the Amitrail of a Nephilim series. It's called Out of Place Artifacts. Well, there was a, a lance that was discovered at an abandoned campsite in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And Bob Shelley, who was the owner of that lance, he discovered it, bought it, brought it to the Nephilim Mounds Conference, and Chief Joseph was there. And I thought it was a sword, and Chief Joseph said, no, it's a lance, guys, and began to explain that the Nephilim giants would come in with these lances, and they would they would skewer three braves. They would run just because they were very agile and very quick, mm-hmm. and they would, they would uh, impale three of the braves of the Native Americans and then hold them up and scream and yell and then take them off and pop their heads off like, like you would take a Coke bottle top off and drink the blood i mean oh my this is, gosh this is chief joseph telling me this right native american so you know the white man most of this is kept from us we don't know the stories but the native americans know about it but because of what the genocide that was practiced on first nation people they no longer trust for the most part mm-hmm. was goliath a nephilim yes absolutely uh, now, obviously, he's the most, well, probably the most famous. And then were there other 
giants that were fighting alongside him? Because it seems like the story about Goliath that that I've heard that he was just kind of the leader by himself as far as being a, a giant, you know, a, a Nephilim. Were there other Nephilim that, that fought alongside him or was he just like their leader or how did that work? We don't have enough information. We know that there's more than one for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and the Nephilim are on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And remember, Goliath, by the time you get to Goliath, you're looking at a long time after the, you know, the conquest of Canaan, a long right. time right. afterwards, you know, a couple of centuries. So mm-hmm. the giants at this point, you know, Goliath of Gath, and uh, <laughs> this is where you get into trouble. But that whole section, which is now known as the Gaza Strip, was never conquered by Israel. That's all I'll say. We'll be back with L.A. Marzuli after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other fossil discoveries? I, I know you talk about the Catalina skeleton, and that was the like one of the first pictures that I saw where I was like, oh, this is a cover-up. This is a cover-up, classic cover-up. Can you tell us about the Catalina skeleton? I got wind um, from a fellow author about a cache of records that was discovered out on Catalina uh, by the late archaeologist Ralph Glidden. And he wasn't, you know, archaeology in 1919 wasn't, isn't what it is today. But he did his best, and you can disparage him all you want. He's not here to defend themselves. And this was sort of the status quo on some level. Could he have been, done a better job? Yeah, he could have. But it is what it is. So he is. He goes out to Catalina, and when I go down, um, I see Catalina almost daily. So I find it coincidental that I'm here. Right? <laughs> sure. Um, it's about twenty six, twenty seven miles from Los Angeles, and this this cache of records that had gone missing for fifty years, fifty years, Ralph Glidden's cache of mm-hmm. records, and. Uh, he goes out, and um, or I'm sorry, I got this. I got this email from a friend, Jim Watson. So Jim Watson emails. He goes, "L.A. They found Glidden's records. You're going to want to get out there." So I write the curator of the museum, and they originally decline the offer, and then mm-hmm. I offer later on a substantial donation, and they, yes, you can come out and look at the records and what we have. So I fly out. A friend of mine's brother uh, was a a flight instructor and so i actually literally got to got to fly out um we we're up about a thousand feet 1500 feet and he goes okay this is what you do because it's got two sets of controls and i got the stick and i'm flying the catalina i can't even believe it and um he lands the plane i get out i meet my uh, jim watson's there and and uh, lore lore keeper chuck two great characters on catalina and they uh, golf cart me down 
to uh, Avalon, and then we were in the museum. And uh, Jim, uh, uh, Mr. Borgina is there, and um, we we meet him, and he sets us up. And by this time, the, we've got the museum to ourselves. It's closed to the public. I'm mm-hmm. in the back room where the vault is. I, there's two tables set up with white paper, and I've got my white museum gloves on. And and uh, Borgina goes, what would you like to see? And I go, I'd like to see the pictures. So he goes into the safe and he starts bringing out several museum boxes where everything has been cataloged and, and they're in manila envelopes and the pictures themselves are in plastic sleeves. And I spent some time in the archives in different states at different places. And this is why mm-hmm. it's so important. But you got to get out of the library. You know, you got to get out of the archives. But the sure. archives are important too, as you will, well, you'll soon see. And <laughs> as I'm rummaging through the pictures, I go, oh my gosh, what's this? And uh, I call Borgina over and uh, I go, John, you know, what, what are we looking at here? And he goes, oh my gosh, that's a giant skeleton. So I called my friend and my elder brother, Gary Stearman, and I showed him the picture. I, took, I immediately started taking pictures of the picture. And mm-hmm. it was Gary, Gary Stearman who stated, you know, LA, there are people who can take that picture and tell you exactly how tall that skeleton is. So I had a blog at this time. Now it's, it's all YouTube daily shows. Mm-hmm. And um, I put out a search warrant, uh, a request. Anybody who can look at pictures and digitize them and figure out different heights of the pictures and, and I got three people and there was no collusion between any of the three mm-hmm. until they were done their um, analysis. And then I brought them all in on a Skype call, which was really cool. They all got to meet each other for the first time. Mm-hmm. But originally, um, all three of them put the skeleton at just, just around nine feet, nine foot three, nine foot six, nine feet, eight foot nine. I mean, the measurements varied, but basically the common denominator was upwards of nine feet. That's what we were looking at here. And uh, it was amazing. And I published that in the book Amatrail of a Nephilim. And that picture went viral and other people have stolen it and, <laughs> uh, you know, made it made it their research, which is sure. the way things are done today. There's absolutely sure. no courtesy and no no honor. Well, that's that's for sure. I mean, we see that in the Bigfoot community for sure. Everybody you know, hates every other Bigfoot investigator for some reason. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of sad. I think all of us should be working together to get I to agree. the truth. No, I agree. But everybody so, so. wants to credit, you know? Yeah. And, and that's fine. I mean, I understand that. But what about my credit? Right. You know, yeah. I found the picture. That cost me X amount of dollars to get out there and look at it. So what yeah. about, what about my credit? You know, doesn't that, doesn't that count for anything? My research, which is maligned and looked at, my name is left out, but they'll use the research. Um, So we we analyzed it. And again, we published that. And then Richard Shaw, my my business partner, passed away. It'll be three years this this, uh, summer. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And Rick, uh, Rick and I went out to Catalina and we walk into the museum and there's there's the picture that I discovered it's mm-hmm. blown up on the wall. Um, and some verbiage underneath the picture, except the picture has been cropped and the giant skeleton that was in the picture was no longer there. And, I, and Richard and I look at each other in complete disbelief going, 
you've got to be kidding me. And wow. so I have my book with me. We open the book to the picture and we hold my picture, the original picture, mm-hmm. underneath what Catalina Island did with the picture by cropping the giant skeleton out of the picture. And we published <laughs> that in On the Trail 2, and that goes viral. Thank you very much. And it should, because see, this is what bothers me. Everybody makes, they call us pseudoscience mm-hmm. scientists because we discovered this. We did the due diligence. You know, we we actually found people that could look at the picture instead of just tucking them away in, in, in plastic sleeves and going about your business. We did the due diligence and we're the pseudoscientists. I don't think so. We're not cropping skeletons out of a picture. Right. You know, to to prove our point. I'll give you one more example. Fritz Zimmerman, my wife Peggy, and I are at the Graves Creek Mountain in West Virginia. And we come walking out of the museum, and there's this little display. And on the display is a uh, a, a reproduction of a lithograph from Harper's Magazine over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And in that, it shows... The Graves Creek Mound used to be hollowed out in the inside, and they they made a museum out of it, complete with a giant skeleton that was on display. How do I know this? Well, written history, but also that one picture tells volumes because what we see in the picture is a man with a top hat. Well, the skeleton is on the wall, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's standing up, so it's in a case on the wall. Mm-hmm. To the right of the skeleton and in front of him, is a man with a stovepipe hat on. In the foreground, to the left of a skeleton, but in the foreground, is a woman with a very large hoop skirt, and her hair is done in a way, and the child next to her is a little girl in a period clothes. The dresses go all the way down to the shoe tops. So mm-hmm. this is from the late 19th century, no doubt about it, right? The skeleton's a giant at least a nine-footer, at least a nine-footer, okay? Mm -hmm. So some archaeologist, I won't disparage this guy and tell you his name and embarrass him, he (laughs) he does a hit piece on me and Fritz. And he shows the picture, okay, (laughs) on his little YouTube video, except someone has Photoshopped the picture. Wow. And they've shrunk the skeleton in the picture. And the people watching it go, well, I went to L.A. Marzulli's site, and this picture doesn't look anything like the one that he took. And and I offered at one point, I think it was $3,000 for anyone who could point us to the guy who Photoshopped it, if he would mm-hmm. come forward. Because I want to bust this guy. I mm-hmm. this, this archaeologist is calling us pseudoscience. Well, someone yeah. just Photoshopped Someone just Photoshopped the real picture because they didn't like it. Yeah. Now, now who's the pseudoscientist, right? Right. There you go. I mean, prosecutors lose their, they get disbarred if they do something like that, but well, it's okay for other people. Are they just attacking you because Christianity is completely under attack globally? Is that why they're coming after you or is it because you stand up for yourself? Well, I would say yes. I'm I'm no match for the powers that be, nor are you. Sure. Or, you know, if if they come after you, there's nothing you can do. You can't afford it. You can't fight them. Yeah. You know, they can they can bury. I mean, if if they can if they can indict a former president 
on bogus charges. It's it's if they can, you know, come in and invade his house. I mean, are you kidding me? This is I'll just say this. For the first time in my life, I am afraid of my own government. Yeah. I'll just say that. I am. I'm it, afraid of our own government. Well, I I think that you have every right to be. I think that people that aren't at least a little concerned are really living in the dark. And I agree. I agree. It's sad. It's hard. I mean, you know, one of our goals is to wake people up, but you know, people are just so tired. They refuse to wake up. They want to, you know, watch their Netflix show and go to sleep and go to work and play on TikTok and not worry about, you know, groundbreaking, earth shattering discoveries. And I, I have conversations with people, you know, about stuff like this. I might be the, you know, the guy in the room that, you know, people don't really want to talk to, but I'll be like, Hey, did you guys know that, you know, the Nephilim were this and that? And they'll be like, Oh, that's interesting. I'm looking for some new Uggs on Amazon. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, y you're missing the point here. I mean, this is, this is earth shattering, but in any case, you can only do what you can do. Um, I did have a question I wanted to ask. So we've heard, you know, double rows of teeth and six fingers and six toes quite a bit when describing giants or Nephilim. Is it possible that some of the people that are born today that are polydactyl that have the extra fingers and the extra toes are descendants of Nephilim or is it just something totally different? I would say I would say no. That's a very dangerous very slippery slope to start okay. venturing sure. down. Yeah, you can't can't even go there. Yeah, I mean, polydactylism is a genetic trait. And the fact that the Nephilim are the progeny, the offspring of fallen angels and earthly human women, there's where you get your polydactyl stuff from. Gotcha. So how do we spot a Nephilim? If, <laughs> assuming that they're not all giants, is there a way that we can spot someone? Well, that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I kind of jokingly talk about this to when I'm on other shows and and discussing sure. all of this. We can't sit down and you know an interview with a fallen angel. You know, I mean, it's just it's never going to happen that I'm aware of. I mean, it's just never going to happen. Well, they would just lie anyway, right? That's the deal. You don't, you know, you don't, the father of lies, you don't know what you're looking at. So you've got the hybrids, which are walking amongst us. That's the title of Dr. David Jacobs' book. They are walking amongst us. They are here. There is a breeding program. In the Bible, the biblical narrative, uh, the angel tells Daniel to seal up the words of this book, Daniel, until the time of the end. Then he says, men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth, and knowledge will increase. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, first of all, that book was written about 2,500 years ago. Second of all, we're, we're given a supernatural clue that until the time of the end, seal up the words until the time of the end. The supernatural clue is, well, the second clue is that uh, men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth, knowledge will increase. So, that's what we're looking at. Knowledge will increase. And as we speak, men are running to and fro over the face of the earth. I mean, there are, there are thousands of planes running all over the face of the earth. 2,500 years ago, that didn't exist. 
knowledge yeah. was flatlined until the present present day, for the most part. Now it it uh, spikes or or goes up exponentially every six months. It's just unbelievable. So the angel tells us to seal up the words in the book, and then Daniel chapter two verse forty three. Their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not cleave to them. Who are they? Who are they? And this is why Genesis 3.15 is, is paramount in our understanding of the biblical narrative. If we don't understand Genesis 3.15, when we arrive at Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, we are at a loss for words. We have no idea what we're reading. Well, I don't know what that means. But the moment we plug Genesis 3.15 into that scripture, it illuminates it. It just explodes. It is pregnant with meaning. Their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not cleave to them. And the word cleave is the work of Jim Williamson. is the same word that we see way back in the Genesis account, which talks about a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Well, there's no cleaving here. And yeah. the book that we published by Karen Wilkinson, it just came out. It's an incredible book. You can get a copy by going to lamarzuli.net. Karen Wilkinson was an abductee, a lifelong abductee. She mm -hmm. was taken at the age of six years old. Her book is entitled Stolen Seed, Evil Harvest. And the book is riveting. That's what she talks about. She's also the mainstay, the tentpole for number four in our uh, UFO film series. There are now uh, six films out of that series. We're working on seven and eight. They'll be out soon. But number four is on the abduction phenomena. And, and Karen, because she was taken at such an early age, she is the center of that film, which then led to the book, which we published. Uh, it's, it's right out of the scripture. And, and people in the churches, for the most part, because, again, if Genesis 3.15 doesn't mean what it says, then then what, what are we to do when we get to Daniel chapter 2.43? And they have no answer. They're, they have no answer for it, because if you don't believe in the seed war, then when you get to Daniel chapter 2.43, you're at a loss for words. So there's still doing this there that's what these alien abductions are where they're impregnating the women and coming back and taking the the baby yeah this is all in our uh in our film uh mm -hmm. number four which is on abductions and then further in, in number six which is on cattle mutilations which mm -hmm. is a very intense film we show what the cattle mutilations are being used for well that's really interesting because i don't know that anybody has ever no. Covered that. Nobody it, it, We're the first. Amazing. Groundbreaking still. And let me just tell you, folks, if you haven't seen it, you, you need to watch this series. There's six films. Number four is on abductions. Number six is on catamutilations. The material yes. of catamutilations are being used to construct an artificial womb. So when the child is taken, oh. exactly. When, when the baby or the fetus, whatever you want to call it, the entity, is taken in the third month of the woman's first trimester, that entity can't live outside a womb. So the cattle, bovine blood can be used in a human transfusion. That's a medical fact. Wow. Cow blood can be used in uh, human transfusions. So that, that baby is taken 
from the mother's womb and placed in an artificial womb. And that's what the countermutilations are about. And we are, as far as I know, the first people ever to put that together. Yeah, I've never, never, ever have I heard a reason for it. I've heard people, you know, they say, oh, it's, you know, the reason that the cuts look so precise is because they're being eaten away by sharp tooth predators and stuff like that. And I'm like, come on, man. Yeah, just nonsense. You're making this stuff up, guys. Yeah. I know Ryan wanted to ask you about something here. Ryan, you want to go ahead? Well, there have been a few points that I've wanted to kind of jump in. And I do want to add that I've also never heard any theories or anything as to what the purpose of a cattle mutilation was other than some kind of maybe scientific test by an alien species. But for some reason, you saying to build an artificial womb feels really right. Thank you. It's like... It's like an episode of a detective show where they finally figure out what, you know, what they're planning next based on what they've done. It's like for some reason that just feels like a really legit use for the samples and tissues that yep, they're taking. Exactly. Uh, and also just, I mean, the whole idea of the Nephilim and giants and all that stuff in our history, even just apart from that, uh, I didn't know where to slot this in, but I've been thinking about it. And since Jay teed me up, I'll go ahead and say it. But I, I've just seen over and over, I feel like, evidence that there is some sort of uh, maybe preferred default narrative that the powers that be want us all to buy into. You know, whether that's just the history of humanity as we tend to know it now, you know, with, uh, what was it in Australia? They discovered human remains that dated back almost 70,000 years. And they're calling that pseudoscience. There's a whole sort of out of Australia movement to challenge the out of Africa one saying that there's this evidence of humans that should not have existed Mm -hmm. at that time. But it, it seems like those people are going through the same thing you've gone through that they're, they're being, uh, ignored, Maligned. discriminated against. They're having their evidence or their publications sort yeah, of altered yeah. or tampered with in some way. And it's just... it. It's hard to not be too alarming, but it's like what... It's so strange to me to think what the purpose of that might be. Just Just from my own perspective you know what is it that would have them be so invested in in this narrative and not having it be challenged by your discoveries or other people doing similar work it's uh i don't know it just makes me think that there's something going on that none of us understand or at least i don't and maybe jay doesn't maybe you have more of an insight into it but somewhat familiar with but i'm sure you can give us a lot more information about it than most folks would have
Well, the, the existing paradigm, everything springs from Darwinism. And I would say that the people at the top know exactly what's going on. And they can't allow that to, to, um, to manifest or to be looked at. Because it, what it does is it tails into or dovetails into um, the biblical prophetic narrative. It shows the reality of a supernatural world. Remember, in Darwinism, there is no supernatural. This is it. There's only the empirical. This God um, and, and miracles and Jesus and prophecy, all that is a bunch of hooey, according to the, <clears throat> the modern-day Darwinist. That's just the way they roll. That's it. So there are no miracles, according to the Darwinist. There, there is no supernatural, according to the Darwinist. But to the Christian, that's exactly the opposite. When we take our Bibles and we look and we read, every page is supernatural, something going on. So that's what's at stake here. Keep people in the dark. There is no God. There is no sin. There is no heaven or hell. It's, it's the Imagine Song by John Lennon. That's what it is. And that's the prevailing paradigm. That's what they want. But to us as believers, we know that the prophecy is real, that what was written thousands of years ago will come to pass, that what was foretold thousands of years ago is unfolding, even as we record this show. All we need to do is look at what's happening on the global stage and focus specifically in the Middle East, i.e. Israel, to see that we are rapidly moving towards something, towards some sort of a uh, an event which will change everything. And this is why we're doing our UFO film series, <clears throat> trying to get uh, all of them done before the end of the year. Uh, we are working as I speak. My business partner is in the studio uh, working on number seven, which is the Roswell film, Roswell Revisited Exoneration, where we revisit the Roswell crash. We interviewed Linda Marcel, who is Jesse Marcel Jr.'s widow. For the first time, she comes on the record. And in our opinion, we've exonerated Jesse Sr. There's no doubt. What was there was not a weather balloon. End of story. Are these scientists that are just refusing to buy into it just ignorant? Or are they like toting a more malicious... I guess, agenda with this? Are they in cahoots with the darkness or are they just convinced that they're right and that's it? I think it's a mixture. There's no way to tell. There's no way for me to tell. Um, I have gone toe-to-toe with archaeologists before, um, so-called scientists before. Um, and I had one, one man uh, come up to me at a conference recently within the last couple of years and, and uh, just say, Oh, I just want you to know that your DNA work um, has sent ripples to the scientific community. Um, no one will talk about it openly, but it's, it's got people, it, it's, it's causing ripples. And I just kind of went, Oh, okay. I have, you know, I have no idea. We, like I said, we've been disparaged by the powers that be and, our work has been maligned, but the science is science. The science, you know, <laughs> I'm not making this up. You know, <laughs> the machine that takes the DNA sample could care less what my paradigm is. Has no interest in my. It's a machine. It's you put the the data in, and it's going to give you data out. 
You either believe in the machine and the data that it's that it's punching out, or you don't. Right. And we do because data is data, you know, and that's that's not going to change. The machine could care less whether I'm a born again spirit filled Christian or an atheist. Right. Yeah. What what does the machine know? And it's not AI that's doing it. So there you go. Yeah, it seems like you know people don't write things to dispute you. It always seems like with you, they personally attack you, and that's that's not science either. <laughs> if you yeah, if you can't discredit the work or find some hole in the methodology, then your best bet is to go after the person. I mean, that's kind of how how it's always worked. Yeah, and they, they, this is how they engage and add hominem attacks. And you know, I'm not look. I, I'm 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 a sinner saved by grace. You know, I, I was at Woodstock. Uh, unlike our former president, I inhaled as deeply as I possibly could. <laughs> uh, don't you love that? We're really gonna. I did not inhale. Really, you're the first person. In history. <laughs> You don't have a couple hundred people that died by mysterious suicides in your life either. So there's a lot. I'm not even going to touch that with a (laughs) table. Not not in this political climate. No, I hear you. (laughs) Uh, So we are, uh, I am about 40 minutes from Cahokia Mounds. What what do you think is going on at Cahokia? What What we see in Cahokia is the largest earthwork in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were to take dump trucks and stack them end to end, bumper to bumper, okay, and mm-hmm. fill them with the dirt from Cahokia, you would have 250 miles of dump trucks end to end. Wow. Just just pause and think of what that looks like. And we are supposed to believe that Native Americans with clamshell hose, digging sticks, deer antlers, and birch bark baskets moved mm-hmm. This this type of tonnage to create a hokey amount, not buying it for a second, guys. Could there be giants buried in there? What do you think? Of course there were. I think so. I would, I, you know, <laughs> I just have this dream of just sneaking in with a shovel one night. Oh, but yeah. And you don't want to do that under any circumstance. I don't know. No, you- no, no. No, and I I wouldn't, you know, I don't really want to disturb any burial grounds, uh, let alone, you know, that's another thing could have Nephilim. So, all right, well, tell everybody one more time where they can find all your stuff, LA. Thank you. It is uh, lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net, or you can go to our streaming site, streaming.lamarzuli.net. And uh, there's, 27 films right now. We're working on 28 and 29. I've written 13 books. Don't forget Stolen Seed, Evil Harvest. Vicki Joy Anderson's book on sleep paralysis, They Only Come Out at Night, is a must read if you're interested in the topic at all on sleep paralysis. The woman, both of these gals are, are just incredible writers. they great researchers, and we're just really proud to publish their book. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. You have an open invitation. So if there's ever a time you want to come back, please let us know. And I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. Thanks. Good night. Do you believe that giant skeletons are being hidden from the general public? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Expand. 
I oh okay. Uh, if you insist, I I've just heard way too many stories about it. Mm-hmm. I've heard way too many podcasts, YouTube channels, blogs, news articles talking about lar- you know unusually large skeletons being found places, and then they're either destroyed or the archaeological site is somehow changed or destroyed or paved over or bulldozed or whatever. Yeah. Parking lots Um, and malls, man. Yeah. And I also just, I feel like it is unlikely that there are so many historical reports of giants Mm -hmm. for there to not be any. You know what well, I mean? Like that. I know that there's a possibility that we're exaggerating, or that you know historians, whatever, yeah. are exaggerating that there's somebody who's super tall. I mean, yeah. you you have somebody like Yao Ming, and it's it's hard to overstate how big he is. Yeah, what is he like? Seven foot six or something? He was yeah, super something like tall. That. But then you have like Robert, uh, what was Robert Wadlow? Yeah. I mean, these aren't exactly like the giants you hear about, though. I mean, Yao Ming's an athlete, but Robert Wadlow was, I mean, he had issues because he was so tall. Yeah. He was nine feet tall, and its he wasn't in the military. He wasn't like that scary giant guy from 300 that they had chained up who's just running through people. He's not impaling three braves on a single spear. Like no, he's trying to find different. a fucking oak tree to make a crutch out of because he can't walk. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I'm not dissing the guy. It's it's true. I mean, it, they, you run into all sorts of problems if you're a regular human with giantism because the heart can't pump blood down to your feet and back up when your feet are seven foot away from your heart. It just yeah, isn't that work. how he died? I, I don't even know, but I know that giraffes have like a special system built in to be able to pump blood, you know, up to their brain because it's so, so hard to do. And yeah, like exactly like you said, Shaq and Yao Ming and Shaq was only like seven foot tall, I think, which is, I mean, that's still huge, but it's not a giant. And he was an amazing athlete. Same with Yao Ming. But think of... I mean, there's there's some other basketball players that have been really tall and stuff. But when we're talking really tall, we're talking like tops seven and a half feet. Tops. Yeah, I mean, I went to grad school. Well, yeah, I went to grad school with a guy who was like six, seven. And undergrad with a guy who was seven feet tall. It's, I mean, it's unusual, but it's not. Nobody was like completely shocked and in awe when they saw him. Yeah. You know, Shaq's height is basically a joke now. Yeah. Like his size. Like you see him in a he looks like he's in a go-kart when he's sitting in a Buick or something like that. Or yeah. they had him on Shark Week a couple years ago and he's you know, they're like, "Okay, we're going to stay on this boat." And it's hilarious <laughs> how big he is trying to get into these little cabins on a small like fishing vessel. Yeah. All but, the sharks yeah. flee. They're like, "Fuck that Shaq, dude. He's going to eat us." <laughs> just pulling him out by the tail out of the yeah. water. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about my encounter with the giant? No. Yeah, it was the uh, first day or night, I guess, of YMCA Rec League basketball. And all the guys on my team were like 
five ten to like six foot, really. You know, not maybe a couple inches taller than me, but not even as tall as you. And then the first freaking game, we played against a seven footer that played for Kansas. Now he didn't wow. go to the NBA. And I, I don't ever, like, I don't remember his name or anything like that, but he was seven foot tall and it's not fair, but you know what? That is kind of true, actually. Like that it's not fair. It's yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> they have weight classes in boxing. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have me fight you yeah. in boxing for the most part. I don't know how heavy you are, but probably nowhere near as heavy as I am. I'm about two two oh five right in that area. No, because one punch would knock my fucking head off. Because yeah, I don't know what yeah, the classes are, but yeah, I mean they just know that physics are. Most people don't really know how to fight, so you're going to get like a punch or two in, and then you're going to the ground, and whoever the biggest person is wins. That's how fighting pretty much works. Outside of like trained fighters and stuff. That's like why that. I got to take a- your knees out, Ryan. <laughs> And in basketball, yeah, you have an unfair advantage if you can just reach up and put like place it in the basket as easily as I can put something on top of my refrigerator. Even seeing that seven footer and, you know, you've probably been to hockey games and a lot of hockey players are six, six, and then they're on those skates and they're huge when they walk by. Mm-hmm. But I would never see a seven footer and be like, oh, that guy was 14 foot tall. It wouldn't happen. You know, I mean, I might be like, that guy was like eight foot tall, but I'm not like doubling his height. You know what I mean? So when people are talking about seeing 13, 14, 16 footers, these are not people that are exaggerating tall humans. These are completely different entities. Right. And I don't think we got into that with him, which I would have liked to if we had had a little bit more time. Just is there some percentage of giant accounts in the historical record that might really be misattributed yeah. that it's just very large people ordinary people but you know like i got a buddy who's seven feet tall that's unusual mm-hmm. and if you're having just an oral history that I mean, we know how things can change and details can be embellished over retellings the reason that Shaq is such a freak is because he can run and he can jump and he can he's very athletic at that height and most people that you see and Yao Ming was an exception but he had a lot of problems because of his height too but most people that you see that are that tall are just dudes that they put out there sometimes to try and block shots they can't dribble you have to you know pass them the ball you know where you throw it up over their head and they catch it and then they turn around and take a shot or they dunk or pass it off. Yeah. I was just about to say Dikembe Mutombo. Yeah. Was a defender. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was his deal. He was seven. He was over seven feet or is over seven feet tall. He's still alive, right? Yeah. And, and he was very athletic too. He, he probably could have done more offensively if, if they had wanted him to, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he, his, Block shots, block shots and take up space. That's what we need you to do. Set picks. Nobody wants to run into Shaq setting a pick. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I believe that the Catalina Island giant was real. And 
I believe that the Smithsonian has giant skeletons in their basement. And I believe that the Vatican has giant skeletons in there. They might have live giants down there. Who knows, man? They might have Goliath fucking chained up in the archives there. I don't buy that. You don't believe that the Vatican has them or any? No, I don't believe that the Vatican does. Hmm. If they did, it Hmm. supports... I mean, it supports the sort of biblical history. Yeah, that's a good point. I think they'd be like, no, take a look at this. We we totally got this. This really proves stuff. But I also think that the religious aspect of it is something that might turn people off. Because mm-hmm. like you said, there's a religion. I mean, you didn't say this exactly, but religion is sort of unpopular right now. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think Christianity is under attack. Yeah, so I think saying that it's fallen angels breeding with humans or any way you spin that, when you involve some sort of religious spin to it, it there are certain people who I think it's just going to cancel any critical thought they would have about it. Whereas maybe for some people it would be more palatable to say, like, look, we have these giant skeletons. Where did they come from? And then progress. I don't know why they're so hell-bent on covering everything up. I I know that even if he was not coming at this in a religious context, I think he would still be shut down. And, And there may not be as much malice towards him as what we see, because there's, you know, a lot of people that are just, they hate Christians. They hate the idea yeah. of what they think a Christian is. And I think that they would still shut him down because, well, what happens if, like, say you look at the, uh, say they bust out a 14 foot skeleton and say this was on Catalina Island. Uh, this was the guy that he was talking about. They found it. It's real. What does that do to Darwinism? It fucks everything up, right? Well, I mean, to an extent, I guess. I mean, that is what he was sort of suggesting, but you could also look at it from a perspective of it's still Darwinism. It's still breeding of some sort. Yeah. It's just a breeding that we didn't know was going on. And what could the implications of this be and whatever? I think there's a whole other rabbit hole you you could go down with that. Anything that doesn't go along 100% with Darwinism is is just getting shut down. They don't want people yeah. to believe in any God. They want the God to be the iPhone and Netflix and, you know. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. If you don't believe, if you believe God exists, are you going to not buy an iPhone? I don't think it really changes anything for, for most companies or most, sure. you know, most aspects of society. It might just be when it comes down to your allegiances, political or otherwise. Yeah, well, my suggestion is let everyone that has money submit DNA. If you decline DNA, that's, I I mean, I I can't think of why you would want to do it, except so you don't get caught up in this, you know, alternative metaverse of thought that you know we explore twice a week here 
One of those things got in. Kill it. Kill it. Well, that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. Don't forget to click that subscribe button. Let us know what you think or anything else you want to hear, any other guests you want us to interview, or if you yourself have an experience with a Nephilim, email us at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com. Or especially if you are a Nephilim. <laughs> that would be, that'd probably be best. First-hand accounts. But you can also check out our stunning t-shirt designs at cryptiquepodcaststore.com. And remember, giants are not what we think they are same qualities that appear to give them strength are often the sources of great weakness. At least according to Malcolm Gladwell. Good evening, Grip Keepers.